Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is a return, a return guest, which we love seeing. It is Alan McKenzie, who is CEO candidate of JLL. When he was last on the podcast, he was with TrioVest. It was actually a great episode, definitely worth listening to. And his backstory is quite interesting. We covered it there. We're going to jump in with Alan today, kind of, you know, at that where we left off in the last podcast and carry on. But first and foremost, welcome back to the podcast, Alan. Well, listen, gents, uh, really appreciate you having me back. I guess I'm a repeat offender now, so to speak, but I really look forward to having a chat again and getting caught up with you both. Adam and I are always proud of ourselves when we get repeat guests because it means that it's not an awful experience. So uh, (laughs) hopefully that's true for you too. Let me, I mean, again, I'm going off memory, but I've had many people approach me telling me that your podcast that we recorded I don't know, it's like 16, 18 months ago now was one of their favorite because you really had a great view on leadership. And if I remember correctly, you know, your ascent to your role at TrioVest was partly due to the way that you really, you manage your specific team and you were identified as such a great leader to the point where I think you have a sort of a mission statement or a personal vision statement that you had shared with us that I think people found really, really, I don't know, motivating. So let's start with this. Can you remind us what that, you had, what's that statement? What do you call it, Alan? Well, I call it my personal purpose statement, and it goes like this. It's to ignite and support the pursuit of purpose in other people's lives. Right. And it's foundational for me. So then let's spring off of that. How has, well, let's let's ask first the transition. Why move? Why transfer to JLL from TrioVest? Very difficult decision. Uh, I was certainly, it was one of those moves, and I think all moves should be measured this way. I believe, at least for myself, I can't speak for others, but I try to move towards things that are, they're going to create an opportunity for me to expand my horizons and be a benefit and of value to others, as opposed to moving away from things. So it was very sad for me, quite frankly, just being very transparent. It was a very sad day when I walked into Vince Brown's office and verbally gave him my resignation. It was probably about 10 months ago now. Still feels like it was 10 minutes ago, quite frankly. I love TrioVest. I love the people there. I love the Manic family who owned it. The board was great to me. It was a phenomenal experience. Uh, What they gave me was so much learning, so much uh, freedom to do my thing, which was great. But what ended up happening was, it was, in fact, it was probably about a year ago this week that I did get an email from JLL out of Chicago uh, asking me if I would be interested in interviewing with them. And it, quite honestly, it caught me off guard. So it took me, I think, a couple of days to respond back to the email to say, yeah, you know, let's have a chat. At the time, I knew enough about JLL, obviously being my position as president of TrioVest, but I didn't know enough about the culture. I didn't know enough about its mission. I didn't know enough about the global organization as a whole. So for me, it was almost an exploratory event to try to find out more information. And I went through the first interview and just told my story. Basically, quite honestly, what I repeated in my interview was exactly what the conversation you and I had back 16, 18 months ago on the podcast. In fact, in the first interview, they referred to having listened to the podcast. And so my first interview was actually your podcast, not my first interview, if that makes any sense. And that's a true story. So we went through that and I guess they still liked what I had to say after the first interview. And long story short, over a four month and 10 day period of time with eight interviews from people in six different cities and me doing those interviews, I think in four different cities, they decided to make an offer to me and needless to say, I accepted. So I had done the startup thing before with the McKenzie Goulet MGI, as we talked about before 20 years ago. 
I think it's not appropriate to call TrioVest a turnaround, but certainly TrioVest was a company that was going through a shift, you know, towards, uh, you know, away from some of the headwinds and towards some of its strengths in property management specifically and getting some capital deployed, some of its own and some new capital partners. So that was a bit of a turnaround. And JLL for me, I looked at it and I said, wow, you know, Fortune 200 company, been around for 200 years plus, 90,000 people. 80 countries that it operates in. And in Canada, it was 18 years old and going through great growth. But for me, it was an acceleration play. So I did the startup, did the turnaround, and I really wanted to finish the trifecta, do the uh, the acceleration play. And Aaron, just coming back to the question about my personal purpose statement, I did mention to you in the last podcast that if you're going to deploy, if you're going to be effective on deploying your personal purpose statement, that's along the lines of you know improving people's lives and whatnot, you need a lot of people. So JLL had 1,500 people and three of us had 500 people. So just as I said to Vince Brown back five years ago or four years ago when he offered me the presidency slot, I said, okay, 1, 2, 12, 25, 550, I'm in. Well, now somebody offered me 1,500 people. And I found that to be exciting as well. And, and quite frankly, I started in brokerage 32 years ago. Then I went in and I did development. I've touched all asset classes of retail, multifamily, industrial, the capital markets game, the office game, the property management game. And this was an opportunity for me to get back into brokerage, which I love. I love serving clients. And it's an opportunity to pull together all of my vast experience into one bucket. So, And so far, it's been going great. I've just loved it. So let's date stamp. Sorry, it's May 12th, 2020. We're recording live, each of us sitting in our homes, in the middle of sort of the COVID pandemic. But before we get there, let's talk about what your first couple of months were at JLL and how you came in again with this willingness and mobility to lead. And what was your strategy to kind of get in there and start to impact the culture? Yeah, good question. It brings me right back to it. I'm on month seven and a half on the job, by the way. So this is all still very, very fresh, right? No, I set a uh, very disciplined 100-day plan, which I shared with John Gates, who's the CEO of the Americas and the Markets Division uh, for JLL down in the US. We were completely aligned on that. And basically, at a high level, there were three things that I really need to do. And they all included me shutting up and me opening my ears and listening a lot and learning as fast as I could. So the cohorts that I met with, I flew across the country several times meeting with our brokerage teams. So we have these pods and teams of brokers. I met with probably 60 or 70 of, of those people in 40 different brokerage teams. And I, quite frankly, that, with that group, I asked them three specific questions because I needed to learn. Tell me what your pain points are. Tell me what your pursuits are. And tell me what utopia looks like for you and your team in 2025. And I downloaded a whole bunch of information onto a matrix spreadsheet so that I could find some common grounds, as you can imagine. So I did some business planning on that. I also spent some time with our senior executives down in the U.S. on two specific trips, one week each, learning about the HFF capital markets integration, some of the HR challenges that they were having, how they viewed leadership, successful leadership in the U.S. group. And I wanted to get a bit of a judge as to how mature they were as an organization in the U.S. because, of course, they've operated there for a lot longer and much of uh, JLL came from the Staubach organization. who has been around for a very long time. So I wanted to learn about the culture and learn about where they were on sort of the maturity curve in comparison to us. And then the fun part for me was I probably met with 50 or 60 of the JLL clients during that period of time as well. And I was gathering feedback from them in areas where they thought we were competitive, where we could improve, quite frankly where there might be gaps for us to fill in. And all that learning 
you know, taught me uh, a bunch of stuff. I fed back to our senior leaders after I, uh, I did all this in the first hundred days. Uh, we had an all day session in Toronto. Basically said, here's what you told me. So this is all about our culture. Here's what you guys told me. You told me that your culture basically is best defined as three simple words, communication, collaboration, and trust. And I asked all of our senior leaders, there were 19 of us in the room. I said, does that sound about right? Because that's what all these people told me. And everybody said, yeah. No one's ever said it that way before, but that's exactly how we would define our culture. I said, okay, well, it's like a little Venn diagram, right? You have to have all three working at the same time because they intersect to that oftentimes as well. And I said, so let me ask you another question. Like, I think from what I've heard that the JLL Canada business identity is best described as one of product leadership. Is that correct? Of course, everybody in the room said, well, tell us what product leadership is first and we'll tell you if you're correct or not. I said, okay, no problem. You know, we could be a customer intimacy play or we could be an operational excellence play or we could be in the framework of product leadership. And product leadership, these are companies, and I explained this, they had a nice slide up on the screen. They said, these are companies that have, uh, quite frankly, transformative purpose and they follow this purpose to a T. You know, they produce superior results for their clients and they can prove that through the results. They have proprietary products. And on that note, you know, JLL alone last year spent over, invested over $400 million US in technology alone to try to increase its value that it provides to its clients and they're all proprietary, so I think like, that's pretty cool. These companies culturally are deep collaborators. They're data miners. They, ta- they manage the talent incredibly well. They're so focused on continuous improvement. They have a mindset around promoting ESG, so environmental and social governance, and they're very, very big on promoting diversity and inclusion as well. So then I asked them, I said, is that who we are? And of course, everybody said, yeah, that's exactly why I came to work for JLL five years ago in the first place. I said, okay, so we got culture down, right? We're communicators, collaborators, and we trust each other, and our clients trust us, and we try to trust our clients. Yes. Okay, we're business framework is uh, product leadership, correct? Yes. I said, okay, so what's our purpose? And it just so happened at the time that we were having that meeting that Christian Albrecht, our global CEO, was through a group of people that he had put together at the board level, developing our own new purpose statement as well, which is to shape the future of real estate for a better world. So I was able to throw that up on the screen and say, do we believe in that? And they said, yes, we totally believe in that. That's awesome. I said, okay. I went back home that night and I remember having a conversation with myself and the meeting went incredibly well. We walked out arm in arm and we were going to change the world, quite frankly. We were going to go on this quest. And I said, all right, I now know what my job is. My job is to become the cultural evangelizer of all of this really, really, really good stuff. So what did I do? I set out on a next journey across the country. I think I was probably on about 100 planes over the next 30 or 60 days. And I was telling the entire organization of this discovery. I was getting alignment on these three words do define our culture. And that product leadership is the identity of the organization. And I asked everybody, I said, I'll challenge you, challenge me. Okay. Do you think that having a culture of communication, collaboration, trust is a bad thing? And of course, everybody laughed and they said, no, that's got to be good. So that's how uh, we defined it. Uh, Basically, they defined it. I just happened to uh, put a few words to it. And I've been evangelizing it ever since. And it's been received incredibly well. Maybe we could talk for a second about, you know, your transition to the role starting in March. Because it sounds like you were in cultural information absorption mode for the first couple of months, which you've been doing regardless of you know, what was on the horizon. But maybe you talk about how your plan shifted as we headed into to COVID-19. And did you feel that you had enough time to suck up the culture before we all had to you know, really change the way we interact with everybody? Quite frankly, the fact that we doubled down the culture early is what's significantly helped us define what success looks like as we go through the COVID-19 virus. Because basically what we did was the first thing that 
First thing as a group of senior leaders in the organization is we needed to define, so this is sort of my leadership role taking us through COVID, is we had to define what success looks like for the team. So we built a uh, very quickly, and by the way, we started this process back on Monday, February 3rd. We didn't wait for the offices to be closed down on March 13th, 14th, or 15th. We jumped ahead of this. We're fortunate enough to obviously have offices over in China and and in South Asia and whatnot. So we kind of got a snapshot that this could get pretty bad. And it obviously has. So we put in place a business continuity plan going back to February 3rd. And it itself, you guys are getting to know me. I'm all about purpose, needless to say, and culture. So that plan itself had to have a purpose. And it had to have three pillars of purpose, just like our three pillars of our culture. So we very clearly define that, you know, here's what success looks like, guys. When we go through this, and if this is 10 weeks, if this is 12 weeks, if this is 20 weeks, it shouldn't matter. If we follow through on our purpose, which is to one, save lives, two, save jobs, and three, service our clients. And to have that as our purpose to always fall back on and make every decision from a foundational standpoint about how we move forward, how we serve our clients, how we close our offices, how we sanitize our offices, how we deal with re-entry back into the office in the most safe environment in order to save lives and to save jobs. And you know, and to that point on the saving jobs things, I'll just mention one thing was starting on February 3rd, obviously we had to look at our budget for the year and make some decisions in order to tighten down our expenses and not incur some of the expenses that otherwise would have been what I would call non-material or luxury expenses into the business. But we had to create the environment for success once we defined what it looked like. We democratized the senior leadership. It was a safe zone. Everybody was encouraged to talk. We wanted to leverage the intellective team and solicit their voices so that you guys know if we didn't talk about this the last time, I completely trust my teams. I'm completely transparent with my teams. But I also push them and I encourage their curiosity because I want to see some great idea generation, some innovation coming out of them, which they're working on right now. I do my best to you know, eliminate interferences and distractions for the team. Sometimes that's awfully hard. Needless to say, going through COVID-19, there are a ton of distractions. There are a ton of interferences and there's a ton of anxiety, right? So I've got to set that tone. And most importantly, I think I have to be authentic with them, transparent and authentic. So, you know, as we went through this and, and just talking about what my role was as a leader, I had to have the proper tone from the beginning. I had to help the team collectively decide what success looked like. Again, pillars of saving jobs, saving, sorry, saving lives, saving jobs and servicing our clients and creating the environment for success and knock on wood. It's not been perfect. You know, it's, these are rough times. It's the first time we've had a pandemic, obviously in a hundred years, first time any of us in our lives have had it. But what I am, uh, I'm proud of our company. I'm proud of our senior leaders across the company, you know, for their connectivity, their own transparency the trust that has uh, has increased through the organization uh, and how they've moved into this consultative role for the clients as opposed to transactional. They've been selfless for the most part, and they've been looking to help people and couldn't be prouder of them. You know, that's something that First National, I can relate to this because we've we always have tried to get away from, you know, the commoditization of mortgages and be much more consultative and less transactional. Adam, being a salesperson, can appreciate that we spend a lot of energy in our company how have you gone through that exercise and what kind of guidance coaching are you giving to your salespeople to get them away from deal, deal, deal? I mean, I don't think there's many deals going on anyway. Uh, how are you encouraging them to, to stay motivated and stay positive? You're fighting genetics there almost to get them to not uh, feel that way. So it's a bit of a task. <laughs> you know, we have, we have a large cohort inside the organization from a top line perspective that are on 100% commission, right? And 
I think what one would expect is where you're going with this question, Aaron, is one would expect them to look after themselves first to make sure their T4 slips and their families are taken care of by transacting business and making commissions. But when you have a deeply entrenched culture of communication, collaboration, and trust, and you need that trust between the individuals who are the brokers and their direct clients, whether they be occupiers, landlords, or investors on the capital market side of things, there is only one way to develop that trust, and it is not to be selfish. It is to be selfless and to do everything we can in our power with our research, with our information, with the interpretation of the data that we mine in order to try to provide that as value to the clients so that when they're going through these difficult times without data points on sales and trying to figure out what the value of their assets are and what strategies to use when approaching tenants or being approached by tenants for rent relief, that we're here to provide the information. We're here to utilize our intellect as best we can in order to interpret that data so that they can feel safe, they can feel supported, and they can make great decisions. That's our job right now. It's not necessarily to transact business. And the irony is, I don't know if it's very ironic, but the truth of the matter is I can tell you that we are still transacting business. There's commerce that's still occurring in the commercial real estate space. There are commissions that are being paid. There are transactions that, believe it or not, have started during COVID and have concluded during COVID. These are not transactions just started back in January that are now concluding. So are the volumes lower? Yes, they are. Is the pace a little bit slower? Yeah, people are being more careful to make better decisions and more informed decisions. And that's the right thing to do. And we need to be patient with them and help them through it. I'd love to jump into more market stuff. But before we do, is there one other question on leadership before we kind of jump into the, you know, the nitty gritty of some of the brokerage aspects of the business? From your position, people you interact with, you know, it could be clients, could be competitors, it could be uh, government. What are you seeing in another leadership style that you think is working really well during this crisis? I'll answer that by mentioning the person that I report to, and I'm not trying to brown nose, but John Gates, who's the CEO of the Americas. You know, one of the things that when I go through sort of my definition of what I think good leadership looks like, again, you know, defining what success looks like for the team, creating that environment, leveraging the intellect of the team, being present, don't disappear for goodness sakes, solicit everybody's voices, trust the team and communicate clearly from the top and have that tone. You know, here's a guy who's on multiple calls per week. He's being called on to make uh, very, very difficult decisions. As I saw on BNN this morning, I was watching somebody interview about talking about how we're making decisions every minute now that are more material than we used to make every month back pre-COVID. And that's the truth. These are long days. I look at him and I go, and here's a guy who's working 14 hours a day, seven days a week since this COVID thing hit. And he hasn't missed stride once. He's been there whenever I reach out to him and I have a question for him or whenever I need a little bit of support from him, I get a call back inside of 30 minutes. And I think that goes for everybody across the country. So he's been very selfless and uh, what I would call like the ultimate model of servant leadership. You know, he's here to help us. He's not here to prop himself up and he's a mentor to me and he's a great role model for me to follow. It sounds like your values are aligned, which obviously is uh, critical for that kind of large geographic coverage in terms of leadership. So Aaron, can we move on to my favorite part of uh, every discussion? Yeah, yes. the, the, the cap rates, the returns, the, uh, <laughs> the dollar, the value? Yeah, unless Alan has anything else he wants to add on the topic of leadership, mentorship, if there's anything else that he thinks would be interesting to talk about. You know, I, I'm going to give a compliment to the entire industry, you know, even to what, quote unquote, we would call our competitors. Uh, I'm on the phone you know, fairly frequently with some of the other CEOs and presidents. We're trying to share some best practices. Again, it's not against each other. It's for the benefit of the owners and the occupiers that really drive business in our marketplace. You know, I'll thank them for that. I'll continue to be as transparent as I possibly can. 
I remember Tom McCullough from uh, Canada Post Pension Plan asking me when I announced I was coming over to JLL, he asked me, he goes, I get it. I think I get it. I think I get it, Alan. But, you know, like, why are you doing this? And I said, Tom, well, you know me very, very well. You know that I'm a purpose-driven person. And part of the purpose that I would like to, through my personality and my approach to people, be able to say that I left behind and passed the torch on to somebody else is that, you know, maybe our brokerage industry just got a little kinder. Maybe our brokerage industry itself got a little bit more on purpose. Maybe we became a little less selfish and we banded together a little bit more to, uh, to help people, obviously to help the occupiers who need that help to help the investors and the owners to need that help. And I'm starting to see a little bit of that happen. I'm not taking credit for it. I'm just very enthused to be a part of it. Great. It's a great sentiment and I love it. I always say I've seen that too industry-wide from a group of people that typically are, you know, friendly competition, but the emphasis on the competition, I think the emphasis probably shifted back to the friendly, which is nice to see. And I mean that in all aspects of our real estate, which traditionally is on the competitive side. So you alluded just uh, about five minutes ago to transactions happening in the marketplace. You know, I'd love to talk about what you see going on, you know, in the very near term. You know, before we started recording, we guesstimated that we're maybe halfway through this crisis. And uh, if that's the case, you know, what does the next two months look like until we are, you know, and hopefully into recovery? What do you see happening on the transaction side? I know you mentioned that, you know, some new mandates been signed. So who's at the table? Who's making things happen? You know, your insight would be appreciated. Yeah, I think the best way to answer that, Adam, is uh, is by identifying sort of the two different cohorts. So there's occupiers, there's people that use space, whether they be retail, office, industrial, or multifamily, needless to say, and there's there's owners slash investors. So from an occupier standpoint, I think it's very natural to understand that an occupier generally speaking, for the most part, is not in real estate. They're running their own business, okay? They're making widgets in a manufacturing environment or they're a law firm or whatever the case may be. So those people themselves are under a lot of pressures in their own right and in their own business from the attack of COVID on the economy. So from our experience, again, we've gone into a consultative mode to try to help them as best we can. We have experienced a slowing down of decision-making when a company may have wanted to go from 30 to 60,000 square feet three months ago. Now it's sitting back going, wait a second, we've experienced that we've sent everybody home and it's not working all that bad maybe we don't need to go to 60. I'm just using this as an example. Maybe we don't need to go to 60,000 square feet. Maybe we should just increase by 10,000 and go to 40,000 square feet. And then they'll come back to us and they'll say, okay, if we only need 40,000 square feet are the same buildings that you showed us the right buildings. Maybe we should look at moving into the peripheries and something, you know, a little lower cost, maybe into the suburbs. So it's caused a lot of these occupiers who were planning moves and decisions to just step back pause just a little bit, take a re-inventory, hire consulting divisions and consulting the companies. So that's one of our divisions, by the way, run by Ram, our consulting division that's gotten busier than I think he ever expected because a lot of these major occupiers are hiring us in order to go through this analysis for them or reanalysis for them. So there's a little bit of a wait and see when we get on the other side of it from the occupiers. However, having said that, I think most people who are listening to this broadcast will know that one of our strengths, especially in the office side and industrial side, is that we represent a lot of major tenants across North America. And yes, we are still transacting uh, business with those people. So I think we're going to, it's going to take another couple of months would be my best guess as it relates to uh, what will come on the occupier space. We've heard debates, just finish that thought off. We've heard debates about companies saying, I don't think we're going to need as much office space anymore. We've also heard debates saying we actually, for cultural reasons, need our people together. But for social distancing reasons, we may need to take more space to keep them further apart while they're together. 
So instead of packing people in like sardines in the office space, they could space people further apart. Now, if they do that, and again, that company goes from 60,000 square feet to say 70,000 square feet because they need more space between employees, that could change an entire dynamic where maybe we don't go to an A-class building, maybe we go to B-class building and have space benefit, but cost equivalent. So those sorts of things are being dealt with right now live as we're talking. We've got meetings going on on WebEx right now talking with occupiers about that. On the owner and investor side, pretty much, guys, all owners and investors have become asset managers over the last eight to 10 weeks. They're working very, very hard on their value enhancement protocols, value depreciation mitigation plans and protocols, they're collecting rent. Many of the, what I would call acquisitions-oriented people inside of these organizations are now in asset management, making sure that they hold the fort down, give confidence to their investors, make sure that they collect as much rent as possible, and make sure that there's limited value depreciation going on. So that's sort of a dynamic inside. However, you know, our industry is very concentrated with what I would call few large ish, medium to large ish institutional owners of commercial real estate. And you know, contrary to popular belief, and this goes even for the retail owners as well, these are well capitalized organizations. They've got strong balance sheets. Most of them have quite strong cash positions. You guys know this better than I do, but they have access to undrawn facilities, you know, inside the company and or ability to access external facilities as well to weather them through the storm. So these are not companies that are desperate. These are companies that got into real estate for the long game. They got into real estate to hold on to it for a long period of time. And I think a perfect example of that is just look at the pension funds. I mean, the pension funds have allocation for commercial real estate, one, because it's a stable asset, needless to say, and it spits off revenue that they can use for distribution to retired people. I mean, that's one of the things in our industry we need to remember. As we're servicing our clients, especially when they're pension fund clients, at the end of the day, we're serving, we have a fiduciary and I think a social responsibility to know who the end client is at the end of the day. And when we're dealing with a Canada Post pension plan or a HOOP or you know a TD Greystone as an example, there are a lot of old people who are under a lot of duress right now who need us to help their managers make the best decisions. So their pens are down and their pencils are down a little bit right now because there's not a lot of data points on trades. It's really, really hard for them to figure out what the value is of what they might try to go and purchase. They're trying to maintain the value of the existing assets that they have, but they're all telling us the same thing as well, that no, our balance sheet's good, our assets are fine. We've got long-standing, very strong investors that are not antsy right now. They want us to make sure that we're doing a good job with our existing portfolio. And then they say the but, but, if you hear of any really, really good deals, let us know because you know we could purchase if we wanted to purchase. So I think what's going to happen, you know, you asked me the question over the next couple of months. I still think there's a couple of months period of time where people are doing that first part, the asset management, you know, making sure the assets are in the strongest position they can be in for a very, very long period of time and shoring that value up, you know, securitizing their tenants as best they can and taking care of business uh, that's on the go. Then they'll gradually move back into the acquisition mode, you know, as uh, call it the fall, sort of the winter comes. There'll probably be some more data points on value that comes out of it. Our valuations group has never been busier. They're valuing portfolios of major Canadian shopping centers right now. It's hard work for them to do. They can't put an asterisk to say this is pre-COVID pricing. They have to be intellectually strong enough to throw out their assumptions as to why value should change. And probably the first cohort of buyers back to the table and it's always the case coming out of a recession or coming out of obviously COVID is the entrepreneurial money that probably has 
fewer investment committees to get through, more entrepreneurial decision-making, needless to say, that can move fast. You know, we see those people probably uh, being the first to jump into the game. There's a lot of well-off, well-heeled organizations that are private high net worth that are going to try to take advantage of some desperation uh, purchases. I should say desperation sales. They would be opportunistic purchases. I think you're probably going to ask me, even though we haven't talked about this, and I think you're probably going to ask me if I've seen you know, a lot of receivership sales and whatnot. Not a lot, a little, just a trickling at this stage of the game, as I say, nine, 10 weeks in. Do we anticipate that there's more to come? Yeah, there'll be more to come because not all of the owners right now call it, have the same strength of balance sheets as the institutional owners I talked about before. So I think we will see some more product that comes in that's a little more desperate. But to your point, could there continue to still be an imbalance between the availability of capital to purchase versus the limited availability that could come on the market, even in a desperation sense? Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of money in the system that wants to buy product and we don't have a lot of product. So it'll be interesting to see the bid and the ask, how close they get coming out of this over the next couple of months. It'll be very interesting to see the lineup of uh, potential buyers. It'll be interesting to see what the pricing is, but we still probably have in my mind a couple more months of strong asset management work to do before that happens. I mean, this is a crystal ball question now, and so I apologize in advance, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. You have access to quite a bit of data and maybe you can pull on some of the things you've seen out of some of the other offices internationally that have kind of come out of the pandemic. Do you have a sense or what is your instinct perhaps of where the valuations are going? And I'll throw in a data set of, you know, interest rates are down, right, from where we were pre-COVID. So do you see a quarter point, half point shift upwards in certain assets? I mean, I take out hospitality and some of the other ones that we know are going to have real challenges and potentially retail, but in, you know, office, industrial, you know, apartments, do you think they kind of come out at the same level they were when we went into this? So our experience overseas, China and Australia and other places where they're out of it, so to speak, and they're back trading again, is the two favorite classes, asset classes for institutional buyers have been industrial and multifamily. Those are the ones, by the way, I don't think it's ironic, but those are the two asset classes who have been receiving the highest percentage of rents received in March and April, anticipated for May and June as well. And in those areas, they haven't seen much of a uh, an increase in cap rates at all. In fact, Australia has been flat. What was trading before COVID is trading at the exact same pricing as it is post-COVID or in the middle of COVID. In other areas, there has been a little bit of a dip because there have been some hurt sellers and some opportunistic buyers. But we're not talking about 150 basis points, 200 basis points. We're talking, you know, in most cases, in that case, again, in industrial and multifamily, you know, max uh, 25 basis points. Office and retail are a completely different story. Even in those countries I just mentioned, not a lot of product is trading. The institutional world that owns the majority of the office product is just wondering about the health. And this is the same story for both, right? They're wondering about the health of their tenant base. So as law firms, I'm just saying law firms, but as occupiers of office space who are running their own ABC Inc., doing whatever service business, as they go through their own disruption in their business because of COVID, owners and buyers are trying to figure out What's the degree and the magnitude of the negative effect on that company's ability to pay its rent, i.e. its covenant? And so without enough data points to you know, realize to say, okay, this industry was not really harmed at all, and this industry got its butt kicked and is now at risk of not being able to pay its rent, all the buyers are sitting back saying, I just don't know if I can move on that asset class until I have more data points about the health of my tenant. Retail is the obvious one where 
Nobody really wants to trade aggressively in that right now. I think the tenant bases over the next six to 12 months could look a little bit different. There are going to be some winners and there are going to be some losers. The winners are going to take advantage of vacant spaces created by some of the losers. It's very unfortunate. You guys know that I've spent so much of my career in retail. My heart bleeds for especially the independent retailers who street front moms and pops who have dedicated their lives and have all their savings in their stores in order to supply a very unique differentiated product or service you know to its clientele obviously different than some of the multi-international retailers i hope to goodness that they all make it but buyers are looking at that right now obviously as being too risky to enter in and make offers and there's no data points on trades as well the market is starved for data that's definitely been a theme there's there's lots of opinions but no data points do you anticipate a snowball effect once a new post-market data set has been established? Or what do you think would be a trigger for more of a a deluge of deals starting to flow? Is it as far out as a vaccination being a wide use? Or where do you see the spigot really turning back on? Well, again, it depends on asset class. And of course, we're specifically talking about Canada here. So I think industrial... If there is you know, really strong industrial product right now with companies that investors can look at and judge their covenants as being strong, which many of them are, they'd move, be able to move back in right away. Office is different. The investors, quite frankly, have to, as I said before, they just need more data points on which businesses were negatively affected by COVID which, versus which businesses are maybe even enhanced in some areas of healthcare profession, as an example, by COVID. So that's going to take some time. That's not, to me, that's not a pricing issue. It's not a bid-ask issue. It's just more of a comfort. If I was a buyer, and I'm asking for $100 million for an office building with my investment committee right now, I know that investment committee is going to ask me to run through the roster of tenants and do a covenant check on each one of them and do some prognostications on you know, how competitive are they in their industry? How competitive is their industry anymore? Is their industry even going to last? So the due diligence that's required on a per tenant basis in the office world right now is just exhaustive. So it's going to take some time. There's no question for us to figure all that out. And again, that's not a data point so much on what a cap rate is that traded two weeks ago. That's a data point on such more macro level issues and that companies are just going to have to continue to get better and better and better at judging and evaluating. So that's on the office side of retail. I think we're going to learn about the winners and losers a little quicker, obviously, than in office. So there is a chance... If the asking prices adjust, risk adjust low enough on specific types of assets that buyers feel comfortable moving back into because they only have 20 tenants and everybody knows that in their category, they're the best tenants in the category. And again, it's the strongest asset in its competitive set in its trade area. And its trade area has a high level of employment, thus disposable income. Then there's going to be brave people that move back into retail and and they might be able to get some fairly good pricing on the way through. I hope I answered that question enough. I know I went on for a long time. No, that was good. Really interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, Alan, informative as always, that was very insightful into what's transpiring. I really appreciate you know, the insights into other countries and what they're experiencing. I think fortunately, you have some visibility on that. So thank you for sharing. Great conversation as always. Looking forward to having you back again. Hopefully it's not another 16 to 18 months. We'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to Informa for helping us get Alan on the show. And thanks to Adam for co-hosting. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me, gents. Best of luck with everything. I want to speak to Alan's next potential employer. If you listen to this entire episode, he's a great guy. The podcast thoroughly endorses him. (laughs) That's my way of saying thank you, Alan. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Aaron. Much appreciated. Anytime. Just ask, I'm here. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.